like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish is a personalized vitamin regimen customized to you. Backed by 45 years of science, they remove the guesswork from your vitamin regimen. With thousands of happy customers, Nourish is a trusted supplement brand by many. Visit Nourish.com to create your customized package today. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Hey there, we'll be back with a new episode for you next week. In the meantime, we're sharing one of our favorites from the archive in case you missed it the first time around. Enjoy! Hi, it's Sandy. Hi, Sandy. It's Amy and Jamie from Clever. Hi, Amy and Jamie. Hi. Thank you for rearranging your schedule for us. No, I'm, I'm here. I'm here and ready. And I was like really pissed that we weren't talking, let's say, at like 730 when I would be having my daily scotch because you said <laughs> I could drink and curse. And, and I'm unfortunately going to be way too sober. But here I am. Well, you know, we can always do another interview at a scotch hour because I like those. (laughs) They tend to be really loose. Okay. Okay. That's a date. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie. And this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Sandy Chilowich. Sandy's a pretty amazing woman. She's responsible for legwear hosiery brand, Hugh, which she founded in 1978 and which has since become a wardrobe staple and a household name. And I have owned 
so many pairs of Hue stockings over the years. Me too, in all the colors and patterns. Mm-hmm. But now she's the Empress founder and creative director of Chilowich Sultan, an innovative textile company well known for its placemats, indoor-outdoor rugs, and tabletop accessories, many of which I also own. <laughs> Yes, and if you haven't seen them in Jamie's house, you've definitely seen these items, particularly the placemats are in almost every cool restaurant you've ever eaten in. So she's a very talented designer, yes, but her main magic power is probably reinterpreting underutilized and overlooked manufacturing processes. It's really exciting to hear how she was able to take these discoveries and build them into very profitable businesses. So have a listen to our talk with Sandy Chilowich. Okay, let's see. My name is Sandy Chilowich. I live in New York City. I am, it's kind of ambiguous about what I am, but I would have to call myself creative director of a company that I founded in, oh, the, the current product line in 2000 and the little bridge before I got to this product line in uh, 1997. And it's a design company where we design textiles and then make many, many finished products with those same textiles. And let me just add, uh, my husband, who was an architect and who is now my partner, joined me in about 2001 and became full-time and we changed our corporate name from just Chilowich to Chilowich Sultan. I still got precedence, you know, because my, my name is first. And he's my uh, my partner in um, a number of uh, does a number of different things than I do, and sometimes we overlap and argue a lot, and then we separate and do our thing again. <laughs> that sounds mm. awesome. <laughs> it's a little messy, but actually, people sometimes Joe and I are like we just did this the other day. You know, we had this interview with somebody and both of us were asking her questions and and often you know he and I kind of I feel like we're arguing with each other but then she wrote back at the uh, you know the next day thanking us for meeting with us how much she loved the way we interacted and and how it was exciting to see a couple talking like that and but god you know I I thought this was gonna look really stressful but it wasn't I mean perceptions reality so I guess we're not as bad as I think sometimes. Anyway, sometimes what feels like a tête-à-tête, you know, is really just pistons firing back and forth to arrive yeah. at, a, at the same destination or to arrive at the same path towards a destination. I, well, that's interesting that you say that because I always feel that I feel that way, and I always feel that comes off, you know, that I'm aggressive or something, and then other people, thankfully, don't look at it that way. They see it as just I don't know talking. Conversing. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Okay, well, let's start at the very beginning. You were born and raised in New York City, so we would love to know. Not quite. Not quite. Really? Not quite. Well, we'd love to know where then you were born and raised and what your childhood was. I know I can tell you where I was born. And then my raising, the raising part is a little different than maybe what you expect. I was born in Westchester, New York, and then. At age five, moved to Holland, and I lived in Rotterdam oh. for my primary years from age five to ten. 
Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. What, why yeah. did you so, end up there? What was that about? Uh, my dad, you know, was doing business and he was traveling so much. He just thought, actually, he lied to all of us and said we were just going for the summer. <laughs> and then we didn't, we didn't come back for five years. The so old Rotterdam was, trick. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it can't be done anymore because everyone knows. Uh, yeah, so that was, you know, I, I often speak, you know, I I used to speak to my kids and, you know, like I kind of emigrated twice or immigrated twice once, you know, as a child somewhere else. And then, then coming back to America after living in Holland and going to a Dutch school, I felt like an immigrant again. So that was my, that was my early beginnings. Oh, that's really interesting. So did you end up speaking any of the language or what was it like being in a foreign school when you were that young? It was not easy. It was definitely not easy. And yes, I was completely bilingual. I went to a Dutch school and I was not well liked because as you probably know, children of that age are not very tolerant. And, you know, they were eating sprinkled chocolate on bread and butter and I was eating tuna fish. And that was that alone was completely like warfare. So, I, I you know, it was, it was kind of traumatic. But I think at the end of the day, it probably made me uh, a better person. I'm not sure. It was hard. <laughs> it wow. sounds hard, but did you? how did you react to that? Did you become withdrawn or did you become kind of scrappy? I think I was a little depressed probably back then. Oh. But I think I was pretty scrappy. I think so. Um, and then I came back here, and the first day of fourth grade in a public elementary school, first day, literally, they got up and did the Pledge of Allegiance, and I didn't know what they were doing. Um, and they're also, you know, most kids are look, looking like I look like a foreigner. And then this one little girl was really nice to me, and that's a whole other story. And, you know, she really, 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 really befriended me. You know, I used to speak to my children about how important it is to do that. But I don't know. I derived it all, and I guess it did make me scrappy. When you came back in the fourth grade, did you come back to New York City or, or back to where you were in upstate? Well, it was, back, it was back to Westchester. So Mount Vernon was in Westchester, and then we went back and we lived in New Rochelle. And then by the time I was in ninth or 10th grade, I started going to school in Manhattan. So I feel like if anybody has gone to a New York City school starting, you know, in high school or middle school, they're, they're a New Yorker. Because, you know, living in the city at that age, you become scrappy pretty fast, you know, so... And this yeah. would have been uh, pre-Giuliani New York, right? So this would have been also a very oh, yeah. scrappy New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you think about it. Yeah. So we're looking at, you know, 60s. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I graduated high school in, well, what's the sexual position? Is it 68 or 69? 69. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> the position. But I think 68 was the revolution. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, <laughs> 69 is when I graduated. So that, I always have to ask myself because like, I can never remember. 68 or 69. So, yeah, it was 69. <laughs> it was crazy back then. Oh, How kind of crazy? Tell us. How crazy was it? Yeah. There were so many interesting things. But, you know, drugs, sex, and alcohol and, and, and music. I don't know. That's what we did. What was your drug of choice? Were you a, a pot smoker? Oh, my God. Acid? I don't know. How can we, you know, this is a problem. I don't know. Can my kids listen to this at the end of the day? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We did everything back then. Yeah. We experimented with everything. Well, are these like more like rebellious experimentation or just everybody was doing it? 
You know, well, certainly wasn't my whole class. There was a group of us that were definitely doing everything that you're not supposed to do. Were you in like the artsy kid group or the, were you like a, a nerd? Well, it was kind of, we were kind of... Hippie, pot, uh... <laughs> I would almost say, like, well, we certainly rebellious, but it's not like uh, I like there were good students in our group. I wasn't one of them. But, yeah, I think more art. We were definitely on the cusp of music, and a lot of people were. When I think about it, a lot of artistic people were in this group. But somewhere, you know, there was a range of kind of like, I don't know, slightly delinquent mm. and troublemakers. But I don't know what happened to everybody at this point, but I think a lot of them just kind of settled into normal life. Do you think your personal exploration with sex and drugs and rock and roll, was that more about expanding your horizons and broadening your mind? Or was it about acting out and proving that you were not going to be hemmed in by society? What was your personal motivation? The deeply personal motivation, I would say, was to be a celebrity, you know, oh. to stand out and be, to be different. And, you know, that can really backfire and you could, you know, uh, for, you know, for the, for that goal, you could, you know, make a lot of mistakes and not, not, uh, not end up so well. I mean, people take that really far and then they really get into trouble. I never took it that far, but for instance, at our high school graduation and, and when I say I barely graduated high school, I mean it. And then did drop out of college and never never finished. But at graduation, even with the with the principal coming into the back room while we're before we go on to the stage, had heard that I might speak after the, the actual valedictorian, and he said, "If this if this person in this room is going to speak, I want you to know you're not going to get your diploma." I did it. And what did I speak about? The fact that. I think my brother helped me write this speech. It was powerful. I mean, it was like an indictment of of why did we have to wear uniforms at school? And and it was, you know, really well well spoken and and well written bullshit. But um, you know, I did it for you know I got to a few standing ovations. Nice. So my, my dad was one of them. <laughs> and you ended up getting your diploma too. <laughs> I did. I did. Although they would never write me a, a, a when I did decide to go to college, um, they wouldn't write me a reference. Wait. So just double back. Your dad was one of the people giving you a standing ovation. Yes. So you had yes. support for this iconoclastic behavior. Yes. Well, I think my father, you know, who was a huge influence on me, he was very into stardom, you know, and it almost didn't matter what platform you were on. So I think I, I got I got good stuff from that. And uh, at that stage, it was kind of not the most constructive things okay. that I was doing, but it actually didn't damage me. But sure. it, it, he was proud of me because I stood out like that. So I think that a lot of it had to do with that. Interesting. Okay, so back to your story of college. You, you did go to college, but you dropped out. What's the story there? Well, so at first I didn't go to college for a couple of years, and I wrote a screenplay with my brother and my boyfriend, and oh. I did various things, but uh, we were doing that. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should go to college, and I uh, w went to visit Sarah Lawrence, and I never took my PSATs because tests scared the hell out of me, and I could never finish it. I would always have to walk out. But ultimately, they said, well, um, we'll, get, we'll accept you, but you have to take the test, you know, and so it wasn't a condition anymore. 
anymore. And so then I was able to take the test. And so I went there. I dropped that after a year, then tried it again, like a year and a half later for six months and then dropped out. And that was the end of that. What were you majoring in when you were in college? You know, I I thought I wanted to be a psychologist, so I was taking psychology courses, and that school is so um, it's so intense. You know, I, I don't know if it's still the same, but you can you can you can only take three courses, and you can, they all have to be different. And they required though me to take experimental psychology as my first psychology course, and I think that just killed it for me. Uh, it was too much science based, and I I wasn't happy with that. Mm. But that's what I thought I wanted to be, and I think I could have been good, but I was so unable to handle academics and studying. And I just, I had a tough time and it might've been because of Holland and dealing with all these adjustments in school. It was very, very tough. I think. Were you interested in psychology because you're interested in human behavior? Yes. And, and also talking to people, you know, and, and listening to people and trying to figure out, you know, how to make them happier or whatever. But I, I think that, as we all kind of know, that some, sometimes, you know, you become who you are by by not doing the things that you don't want to do. And you just have to find, you know, other other things that you're not you, you don't seem to feel that confident in doing. You land up finding some someplace else. So, you know, it's all the things that don't work out in life that help that really define you a great deal and not just the things that you do well. So, you know, it's a circuitous route. That's interesting. And it, and it sounds like you were continually exploring and not just playing video games on a couch somewhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, the one thing is that I always, even as a little girl, I mean, I always did artwork of some sort or another with my hands. I made things. So it was something that I did. I, I can't remember doing that in Holland, to be honest. But when I got older, I did artwork, and I certainly did artwork during high school. Tell us about the artwork you were doing. What media were you working in, and what kind of expression? I had a tough time with the medium that I was working in, in a way. And I, I, I'm actually thinking out loud right now, like, when did I start actually making stuff? And I think it really was in high school. And it might have started from this friend of mine in high school. You know, I, I was with the wild crowd, I was always very split. I had this wild crowd group, and then I had these, well, this one girl in particular who was unbelievably artistic. She was really kind of prodigy-like in terms of her drawing ability. And so I was friends with her. We were kind of beatniks and wearing black all the time, you know, and, and going to Columbia and studying. With, I mean, I followed her path, actually. She was kind of an idol to me. For, for one side of my brain, and then the other side was the wild one and, and, you know, and acting crazy. So I really had this kind of split thing. But this woman, I was going to the Art Students League with her, and we were, we were drawing for models. And you know what? She was so good. And I, you know, I paled in comparison. But I think it must have kind of ignited something in me because I, I started to do art in, you know, more seriously, my own kind of art. Kind of the beginning of college, I, I found my own thing, my own kind of artwork. I kept trying to do what was more conventional, drawing and painting, and I was very, very bad at that. And then somehow or another, I started to play around with something else, and I don't remember my first effort. I don't know what that was, but it landed up being collaging and uh, basically three-dimensional stuff. Mm. So I was doing that while I was in school, while I was dropping out of school, and I was doing more and more artistic making things. Did you have brothers or sisters? 
I did. I did. Complicated story as well. But um, I had three older brothers. My parents had both been married before, but my my mother had two sons when she came into the marriage with my dad. And I have one, you know, one brother who's from my mother and my father. And then I have two uh, half brothers. And so three older brothers. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if you were an only child or not, because sometimes only children tend to be more on the wild side and sometimes a little lost or rebellious. So I was just curious. Hmm. Oh, I find the same as with the youngest children. You were definitely yeah. the youngest, right? Yes, definitely. Oh, the youngest. Yeah. So maybe there was yeah. some <laughs> desire to stand out. Yes, you have to fight for yeah, your attention. That, and, and being the youngest of three boys, I mean, lots of reasons to want to stand out. <laughs> with college not really working out, did you have a, a plan B or a game plan for what you were wanting to do with your life? Well, you know, honestly... I, when I, I have kids that are grown and I, you know, I seek, I have a lot of people working for me that are kid-like. I mean, I know, I mean, I don't know. I didn't have plans. I also had no pressure. My parents were somewhat neglectful in my upbringing and really didn't kind of know what I was doing half the time. I mean, that's part of, uh, it was a different time and, um, and I had a lot of freedom. And there were no, no really serious pressure on me. There was money in my family. It wasn't like I inherited millions or anything, but I had money in a trust that would allow me, it wasn't a lot of money, but I could like not work and just live really merely. But I didn't have this humongous pressure. I got to get a job, got to get a job. But mm-hmm. I did. I mean, I did ultimately find a way to make money, but it wasn't the same kind of pressure that you know, maybe my peers had. And you started the Hugh Legwear Company, um, which just a personal note, I have worn so many pairs of Hugh tights in my lifetime. Like I yeah, can't even yeah. tell you how many crazy well, now, colors were you there I've at had. the beginning though? Your mother must have had them. Wait, in the eighties I wore them all in the eighties, yeah. yeah. In high school. Yeah. yeah. Late eighties. Well that's nice to know. Yeah, you're probably you're probably at least partially rich because of me and Jamie. <laughs> So that actually started in 1978 and it's an interesting kind of accidental story. Do you want to tell that to us? Yeah. I mean, the, so in a way, the story I was telling you kind of leads up to that because when I was doing my artwork um, and I thought maybe I was a fine artist, I sent my, my artwork out to all these galleries, you know, 90% of them didn't even answer me. The rest rejected me. And this one gallery said, you know, I'd like to see your work in person. And I don't remember the gallery name, but I know they were on 57th street and they were a small, very, very nice gallery. And I go there and show the guy my stuff. And he said, you know, and they, they were collages at that point. And he said, uh, you know, your work is very commercial. Have you thought about being a commercial artist? And I felt like, you know, stabbed me in the heart because I was not a finance. What's a commercial artist? It sounds crappy. And I, you know, walked on 57th Street in tears. So and it wasn't it wasn't like that was, hey, maybe I am a commercial artist. But because I was doing 
a collaging, but I also did a lot of three-dimensional kind of these sculptures with plexi, I started to make jewelry. But everything that I could do myself, not soldering, but more beading and working with wire. And I did start selling them, and I lived in a loft in NoHo back then. It, it was like no man's land, and all of us artists lived in the building. And I had such a long story about my partner and I in that building who became my partner. We found these Chinese shoes, and I don't know how much detail you want. It's a great American dream story. Then we want it all. You want it all? Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm in the building. This is Broadway between Bleecker and Bond, and we're looking at, what are we looking at? We're looking at 1975. I mean, there was nothing there, and we were like, there were... 12 floors. Some of us had full floors. There were factories and some of the floors were paying rent. All of us were artists of some sort or another. And I was making jewelry in my, in my loft and I was uh, going to stores and selling it and actually sold to Bloomingdale's and sold to Bergdorf's and I, you know, handmade them. And I, I wasn't doing a lot, but I mean, I was doing it full time, but it wasn't like I had done it for years. But I was doing that, and then one night, uh, it's a, that's an amazing story because we ultimately all got together and bought the building because uh, it was for sale and we were afraid we'd all be kicked out. Um, and we bought this 12-story building for, like, nothing. Oh my and God. then we all owned these full floors, and we sold the factories that whose leases were up, so we got our money back, whatever we put in. It was an amazing real estate coup what we did. And it, you know, it just doesn't happen anymore, but it was amazing. And so I had 3,600 square feet that I then (laughs) sold for cash like two years later. Oh man! Um, But anyway, so in the process of buying the building, uh, there was another woman that taught art at St. Anne's in Brooklyn and she had gotten her master's from Yale and uh, she and I were, after one of these building meetings, were looking in her closet, I think. And we all, at that time, all of us bohemian art, artsy women, were wearing these black Chinese uh, Mary Jane shoes that you buy in Chinatown. It's just that canvas, cotton canvas flat that mm-hmm. has this, like, strap over it. So that was kind of cheap chic to us, and we were all wearing them at the time. And that night, we had been, we were drinking wine, at, you know, after one of these meetings, and we're looking at them and thinking, God, why doesn't anybody make these in colors? And we were kind of drunk, and we, uh, you know, she had Clorox, and I had Tintex in my place, so we bleached out the black and overdyed it. And then I had a pair, let's do that one too, and we overdyed it. <laughs> And we went to Chinatown that weekend and bought a lot of them. They were all tiny sizes. You know, I I don't even know how when we wore them, it was really hard to find like a normal size uh, shoe there. So anyway, we bleached out a bunch of them and dyed them. And at the next building meeting, everybody that came in to the building meeting said, oh, my God, where where did you get these? You know, we'd love to have them. And then one of the guys in the building, his name is Knight Landisman. He came to us and said, uh, you know, if you ever want to sell these, you know, I'd be your sales guy. And he he ended up being, I think, publisher of Art Forum or something. We thought, okay. Hey, let's let's do this. So we went to Chinatown, bought, bought more of them. And I had, because I was making jewelry, I had an appointment with Vogue to show them my jewelry. And we had the shoes. And I said, you know what? Let's show them the shoes too. So Kathy and I go up to Vogue. And at that time, this was Grace Mirabella. That, that, was, that was the person before Anna Wintour. She was there for years. Mm-hmm. And um, you could go to Vogue. I mean, we had, I had an appointment months in advance, but you see one of the fashionistas that worked for her. And we walked in and, and you know, I showed them my jewelry. It was kind of like, eh, eh, you know, and then we showed them the shoes and like they all like said, 
hold on a minute, you know, and then they leave the room or sitting there and then Grace Mirabella walks in. <laughs> wow. It was crazy. This was on a Friday and she said, I'm going to make you superstars. I'm going to make you world famous, you know. And she said, uh, these are amazing, and we're going to Sardinia on Monday, and we need all of these in size 10 on Monday. Can you do it? And we made these shoes like soup. You know, try a little to this color, a little that. And they were all these organic kind of vegetable, like eggplant colors and mustard colors. And she said, we need them all 10 on, on Monday. And can you do it? And we said, okay, we'll do it. And I'm telling you, I mean, I don't think we slept for 48 hours. And first of all, finding, you know, I think she needed like 10 pairs of size 10 or something. We had to go through Chinatown and finding size 10. We had to buy full cases of 40 shoes that were wholesale and there would be maybe one size 10 in each box. And we had to buy like all these boxes and the, the shoes were still wet on Monday. We were hand drying them with a hair dryer and off they went to Sardinia and they came back and said, you know, you've got a two, you know, we, we're giving you a two page spread. What's the name of your company? Who are you selling to? And so we, it was shoes by Kathy and Sandy and we called them Hugh shoes. And we started selling them to a lot of places and getting tremendous press. We didn't know what we were doing. And, but this was at the beginning of color, you know, it was, uh, when, you know, you could only get a towel in six colors and you could only get a t-shirt. It was just starting. They can get a t-shirt in 15 colors. It was very early. So we would shop around in, in, in on the Lower East Side and Chinatown and buy stuff that you would never be able to get in colors like these cotton gloves that we found and cotton snuggies. Those are like long underwear. And then we got cotton nurses stockings. And we, we offered all those things in millions of colors. And we just called it Hue at that point instead of Hue Shoes. And then all these women, which is really more your mother, were, were saying, you know, God, can't you make a tight? And at that point, the only tights, only, only things you could really buy that weren't socks, and there weren't many of those out there, were pantyhose, you know, kind of sheer pantyhose, mm -hmm. or danskin, danskin tights that came in like you know, ballet, pink, black, and maybe one other color. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we started with, that's how we landed up making hosiery. I, I feel like I've been talking for 10 minutes. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerelly mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master & Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio, so we know you will love Master & Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master & Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master & Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. 
Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. No, That's it's like, such a cool story, though. Yeah. I mean, it's just so accidental. And, like, I can't even imagine having the opportunities that you had for this company. That just seems, like, crazy awesome. Well, you have to be, you have to be really kind of young and stupid, you know. And, <laughs> I mean, you definitely have to be young and stupid. And just not, uh, not afraid of taking chances because you don't know any better. And there isn't somebody around you all the time telling you all the things that could go wrong, why you shouldn't do it. And I think parents now and the whole world around us is like hovering over every decision people make, you know. You want to take this route, that route. I mean, it was really, it was very intuitive back then. And we just, you know, followed a path and then they hit a wall and go in another direction. It was very, very intuitive. And I think it was different back then. Do you think the success of Hugh just really comes from recognizing a hole in the marketplace and being savvy enough to find, find these things that existed that just didn't exist in color yet? Yes. Yeah, I think it I think that's a huge part of it. I think it, you know, in retrospect now, that experience and really informed me for, you know, my future business because, you know, it, what we did is we took this path, right? I go from art, I go to jewelry and collaging, I go to um well, yeah, jewelry then I go to finding these shoes and there was a, there was this kind of progression and we both kept going until we realized, oh, this is the one because this is the idea that really can be a real business. And honestly, we'd never have been able to articulate that. But I know in retrospect now, we had the kind of talent or the vision to kind of see, you know, forget the shoes. That's not going to really go anywhere. Forget this. Here is a whole area that we could just keep going in. It's got so many legs to walk on, you know. <laughs> pun intended. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it was definitely not, not intended, the pun. <laughs> Good. You just mentioned your next chapter. So what happened with Hugh and how did you end up moving on to Chilowich? Well, let's see. Uh, we had Hugh from 78, which is, I think, when we were incorporated. And then we sold the company in 1991, and we both had to stick around for a couple of years, which you do, did until uh, a 93, 94, something like that. So we learned every lesson in the book, I mean, in terms of making that business mm -hmm. actually work. And when we sold it, we were a $40 million business. Oh, my and God. We we just, I mean, oh, my God, at the beginning, we we were going to lose the whole thing because we didn't know what we were doing. And we just had to correct a lot of mistakes, you know, that we made early on. And we learned, I mean, we learned, you know, so deeply, so many lessons. Can you share some of those lessons? Uh, yeah, let's see. I mean, what inventory means. For instance, you can't just keep making and, and owning products. You know, you actually have to make sure there's a balance between what you ship out and what you take in. I mean, it sounds pretty simple, um, but neither one of us had ever taken a business course or anything. And, you know, it took a while for that to really sink in and that you can control that. Hosiery is really an accessory. And you have to be, as opposed to what I'm doing now, you have to be very sensitive to what's happening in fashion and the colors that people are wearing. 
So, I mean, we made colors that we wanted to make, and we really weren't looking at what, what, what was going on. So we would make a ton of red, and we were wondering why nobody was buying it. Mm. The biggest thing, I think, and the, the one that I think really turned us around is early on, a mentor of ours who, you know, wasn't that much older than me. He was a friend of my brother's and he was a business guy. He looked at us both and he said, you know, right now for you to make it, one of you has to sell full time. That's it. That's what you have to do. You're not going to make it unless one of you sells. You can't both be designing and doing all that kind of stuff. And that's what I did. Basically, I did the selling and the marketing. I mean, I designed also, but my first and foremost job and crazy, you know, uh, ambition was to sell more and to market more. Um, that was, that was an amazing learning curve. Yeah. So you mentioned fashion, you know, you have to pay attention to the trends. Is it different in the home decor or interior design business? Yeah, I think so. We don't have to work with a, you know, a seasonal palette necessarily. Yeah, I mean, we're not with with hosiery. You have to kind of work with with the clothing out there. I don't do any of that here. I don't like to look at trends. It all kind kind of comes more from within and from art and other other kinds of inspiration. But no, I don't look at trends. And I hate it when people talk about trends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we won't talk about trends, but it's great that you can kind of create from a totally different place. I'm sure that that offers you a lot more freedom than having to figure out, you know, what's in style this month or something. Yes, uh, it it is uh, very liberating, very liberating. And it's working, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it certainly makes us very distinctive and we don't. We don't follow anybody, and if it's been done, I don't want to do it. And I'm definitely, originality is definitely my greatest mission. Okay, so Chillowitch, the next chapter, how did that start out? Oh, wait, wait, let's oh. hear about, the, didn't the Ray Ball happen in between Chillowitch? Yes, that happened in between. So we sold the business, and, and then when we left, that I also uh, was expecting my second child. I had my first kid at 37 and my second at 44. So I'm a, I'm a poster child for, for women that have children later in life, and it's, I'm all for it. You know, I could never could have done it any earlier than that anyway. Right on. So yeah. I, when I sold Hugh, I stayed on for a couple of years, and then I left. And I had several ideas about a next product. And I knew I didn't want to be in fashion so much, or I didn't know that right at the beginning. But I had three ideas. One was in the jewelry world. One was in the kind of shoe slipper world, funny enough, because that's where I started. Uh, and then the third was, this idea that I had, uh, and I was very obsessed with the butterfly chair, you know which one that is with the wire frame, mm-hmm. and then you have the cotton yes. canvas. So I don't know, and for the life of me, I mean, if somebody said what I'm saying to you, to me, I, I kind of can't quite understand the leap. But I did, I had this idea that it would be so interesting to create a container for the table based on the same principles that you can change the cover and it's got this, it's creating a kind of a concavity with a, with a textile, you know, with very little effort, you know, it's not glued on, it's not, not attached to a frame. It's like kind of loose. So my husband was an architect and I kept taking hangers out of my closet and showing him what I was thinking. And he was saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And, but maybe you should work with one of the designers in my firm that can help you kind of realize it and build a prototype because I certainly was not an industrial designer. I didn't really know how to make things like that. So when I started working with him, we kind of got the frames because I knew I wanted to kind of um, 
it was going to be informed a little bit from a mid-century feel, you know, kind of um, from more from that era, 50s era. And once we got the kind of structure and we think about the textile, completely subliminally, when I'm looking at various textiles, I kept wanting to do stretch because I was so into stretch from hosiery. Mm. And Towards the tail end of hosiery, I was making a lot of power mesh stuff. I mean, we weren't, it wasn't about knitting hosiery. I was taking cut and sew. Like I was taking power mesh and making them as camisoles. We were doing all kinds of things like that. So I kept um, going to power mesh. And then when you stretch, when you stretch this power mesh over this wire structure, it's like a trampoline. Mm -hmm. And then my husband passed by and he stuck his finger in the center. And that simple method of connecting the fabric to to this uh, center point, you know, which really can't, no one's going to know what we're talking about without seeing pictures. We'll show a picture. You know, it was, it was kind of amazing, you know, what it did. And, and I did it in a bunch of colors. Again, I was hand dyeing the mesh, you know, I have to say, my greatest pleasure is the beginning of things, the beginning of the, when I was doing the jewelry, the beginning of uh, the hosiery business and the shoe business. And at this stage of the Ray Bowls, I was in one room in, on, on the corner of Lafayette and Spring, and this is now 1995, 1996, something like that. And I was in heaven. And I don't know if I'll ever be as happy as I was at that point in my life. I mean, being by myself like that. So anyway, it was a good, it was a really good idea. And, uh, I got all these utility patents on this, you know, such a simple idea, but nobody had really thought of it before. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I started making them and MoMA, you know, really launched them. And, you know, I learned so much in my first business because once I started, it's so, there's so many, so many business lessons that I could, you know, speak endlessly about, um, about how much I'd learned just, you know, just nitty gritty stuff about how to launch another product. But it, it was very successful. And that's what I was doing for a while. Of course, I had to get out of that one room because, you know, it was growing and we needed salespeople. And it was all named after my older son, Raymond, mm-hmm. Ray Bowles, Ray Box, Ray, Ray Mail, Ray Trey. Uh, so I was doing all these versions of the same thing. And then I started to experiment with other materials and trying to incorporate them, not exactly with the same mechanics of attaching, but it was taking these materials out of context and looking at ray mail, which was a chain mail, but in a concave way and, and leather in that way. Um, and then I was thinking it would be great to do something that's for outdoors, like a picnic basket. And then I found this material that I, I fell madly in love with, which it wasn't the material. It was the opportunity of the material that I fell in love with. Ooh. And that's really what started, you know, what I'm doing now. And same thing like, like it with Hugh. You know, I started with the shoes, then I did the stockings and this and that. And then you start whittling it down and editing. It's like self-editing and realizing, okay, that's it. And that's, that's what I did with the, you know, moving from the bowls to what I'm doing now. I think the bowls was kind of a one note. And I didn't want to dilute it by, oh, let's make chairs like this. Let's make lights like this. I felt I did it. I don't want to do any more of this. I wanted something that would naturally organically grow. And that's what this new material offered me. And I knew enough. Again, it's somewhat intuitive, but I knew enough on a certain level that if I wanted a business and make a business so I can really sustain myself, this it has to be it. I can't do it on the rate bowls. 
Tell us about that material that you fell in love with. I was looking for something else, and then I found this. And I was looking for something. It was definitely, I didn't even know what it was made out of, but there were these metal folding chairs that had kind of this large pieces of vinyl that looked like a giant basket weave. They're chunky kind of chairs back then uh, from, again, from the 50s, I think. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for that material, and I didn't really even know what it was made of. I knew it was synthetic. And Material Connection, which is this materials library, which you might have heard of, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had just opened their doors, and I had just read about them. I thought, oh, I'll go there. You know, I think I must have been one of their very, very first people that walked in that door. And looking for this material, and I couldn't find that, but I found a woven vinyl fabric that came from this factory in Alabama that was being used for outdoor furniture upholstery. But then I got the samples, and I'm looking at it, and I tried to make have it work in the bowl and I had pictures of the prototypes I made and it really wasn't working but I realized that the material was kind of amazing and then learning how it was made I thought there's so many design possibilities this material is so underutilized it's so much stuff you can do with it and you know I made a placemat I made I actually made some shoes I made a bag I made all these various things and then I went down to Tuscaloosa and met with them we uh, we got along really well. They were a big company, but they were very inspired by what I was doing with the material. And that was, you know, very early on. I guess I introduced, the, you know, the beginning, like my first placemats and bags, maybe in 2000. And it's expanded like crazy since that, that very first time I started with my husband being an architect and him thinking about various backings for the material for different applications. And it's just expanded, you know, a lot. Now it's, you know, back to kind of where I was at Hugh, you know, at that, at that stage. Um, So it's building things from scratch. That's your favorite part is building things from scratch. It is really, really, really. And especially if, if there's continual room to grow, so you can keep doing that. I can't imagine being in a in a mature business where all you do is do the same thing, but in different colors. I think that would be tough for me. (laughs) Yeah. There's something really exciting about watching something grow and, and the possibilities and opportunities that exist with something. And you can kind of foresee that. And, And there's something really inherently exciting about like the seed of something. When you are you know, looking at the marketplace, do you see things out there? You say, God, I can't believe how much this has changed over time. Or, or you look at a particular company and think, this is such a great idea what they did. Yeah, I think Jamie and I both have like a, a few ways of analyzing what's out there, right? There's a need for things that we notice when they're missing, you know, when there's yeah. some, not something there that we wish was. There's also things out there that have been stagnant for a long time that yeah. somebody needs to come along and sort of reimagine what they could be. And then yeah. there are some things that are just, whoa, I wish I would have thought of that, you know, or that's yeah. Yeah. such a great and simple idea and it's perfect. I'm so glad somebody's doing it. I wish it was me. Yeah. <laughs> I suffer from a lot of that. <laughs> I think we all have envy of that. It could even, even be in another, another um, media, you know, where I think, Oh God, I wish I, I mean, I always think, God, I wish I could have written that song or, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yeah, well, but I, I, um, I love what I do. It's, it's hard. It's really hard though. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to have a business and it's hard to have a bigger business and so many, so many balls in the air. You mentioned, which I thought was really an, an interesting thing that you said, but 
that you, when you were making this Rabel alone in, in a room, that was like the happiest time of your life. Do you feel like there could be something in your future that would bring you back to that level of just happiness? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. And yes, you know, I, I think I should be thinking about that more than I do um, because I, I'm very caught up in what I do now and, and, and keeping all the balls in, in the air and, and growing and thinking of new things and so many people involved. And I think I do, I mean, like I just turned 65. So, I mean, I have to remember, I have to, you know, bring up uh, to myself and try to remember how happy I was. But the thing is, you know, what's tough is, and, and it, you know everything. If you if you live long enough, you know you go back and you you look at these funny connections, like that first gallery owner saying, you know, your work is very commercial, basically saying you're really not a fine artist. Um, you know, I I think very early in my life I realized I liked making multiples of things, and I like I like a wider audience. I like to be able to reach a lot of people. So if I were to think, oh, you know, one day I'll you know, have a little studio and make stuff. I don't know if just making stuff without selling stuff and getting a lot of people to buy it will be satisfying to me because when I was in that one room, I knew that's what I was doing. I wasn't planning to make art, mm -hmm. you know, for, for one audience. I was looking for what can I make that would sell to multiple people. So I don't know, you know, what I'll do at the end if, if I don't want to make art. I guess make very, very, very limited editions and I don't know what I'll do. You also mentioned when you were conceiving the Ray Bowl that in addition to being your happiest time, it's because it was the, the genesis, the beginning of a project and you knew that it yeah. was going to go on to, to sell multiples. I mean, if you could get yourself into a position where you're just doing new things all the time, would that make That's you happy? interesting. But what am I going to do with those things? You're going to have to have a team that takes care of it, that sells oh, it. Oh, I see, I see. You know that that that's a fantasy. I don't think that happens. You think that happens? I don't. No. I don't think anyone gets that. I don't think so. You still have to be your own CEO, huh? I don't. I don't know. If the, you know, this idea that you know I could just have these ideas and other people will make them. I mean, to some extent, I do that now. But you still have to manage people, and I mean, I guess I could be like, but I wouldn't want to do that. It would be too much pressure. Like all these major designers out there that, you know, that will on a consultancy, you know, uh, design a line of something for a big brand, right? And their mm -hmm. name is attached. They don't actually have to make it. They just have to design it. I don't know if I could do that because I don't think I'd come up with, I, I don't know if I could do that. Maybe I could. Yeah. I don't know. It sounds really like scary to do something like that because to actually have somebody pay you for an idea and then have it not do well, I think it would be really hard for me. The best thing about this conversation is it's making me think about how happy I was because I definitely want, it'd be nice to look forward to being happy like that again. And I have to say, once you, when you have a big business like this, those moments are few and far between, unfortunately. It's not like I'm unhappy, but not that bliss. Yeah, well, there there is a lot of bliss with with the beginnings of things and and with youth, too. And we were talking to somebody else, I think that, you know, as we're aging, we have less moments of excitement 
than we had when we were younger. I don't know if that's just changes in the brain or we're, we've just been there, done that kind of situation, but we're, we're more striving toward a, a contentment type of happiness rather than a butterflies kind of happiness. Do you feel like you're at that level of contentment in your life or do you feel like you're still trying to get there? Uh, oh, it's such a hard question. I mean, there's so many different kinds of contentment. Yeah. I think my emotional state is an infinity from morning till night. You know what I'm saying? The range mm-hmm. is so great for me. And I can't tell if I'm manic depressive or it's just being a business owner. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just being a business owner. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I, it's, um, I can feel contentment sometimes. I don't think I could ever feel contentment with the business that I have. I don't think with a growing business and the pressures of a growing business. And it's intense, very intense. Well, you caught me on an intense day. Every day is intense, but what would you say are some of the greatest pressures? I mean, I don't have a giant business like yours, but for me, I think it would be feeling responsible for all those mouths to feed. Like once people join my team, I now have to make sure that the business is able to keep them employed and, and pay them a living wage. And that seems right. like an intense pressure to me. What would you say it is for you? Well, I think I, I, I'm, I'm attuned to what you're saying that the biggest difficulties or challenges is always a people part. And I was on a panel once and somebody said, well, you know, what keeps you up at night? And there were a bunch of designers and every one of us said it's the people. So it's not so much I'm at a stage right now, I'm not worried about, you know, them, you know, feeding them or and making them whatever. It's more like, you know, this one doesn't like that one. And this one I really, I really don't like. And what am I going to do about it? And oh, it's um, making them all this happy. one is, wants to leave or, you know, it's just all these people that, you know, with their problems and my problems and the interaction between them and each other and me. And, you know, there's just so much of that. And I find that, you know, I think that's the hardest part for me. And I don't think that's necessarily a general thing, but I think the alone, the alone thing is that I, that I, I don't have to do that, you know, kind of on my own boss and I don't have to think about, I don't have to work with anybody else. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of not working with anybody else. That sounds really appealing. (laughs) (laughs) Except I want to work with people that can make things that I can't make. Sure. I love working with great talent. You know, I'm very good at working with great talent. So I want those people around me, but I don't want them to be difficult, you know, <laughs> to be very nice and easygoing. You know, talking about working with people, we know that your your husband is the CEO of Chowich yeah. Sultan. And yeah, what's that like working with your your main squeeze? Wow. Let's see. Well, within a couple of years, we were we were in therapy together. I mean, that was like, oh, my God, it was hard, very hard. <laughs> I mean, because both of us were, had been our own bosses. I had, you know, actually wanted to, you know, my, my partner and I both wanted to like kind of separate after all those years. And my goal was to kind of not compromise and whatever, but, you know, and I think, uh, you know, it wasn't, it was never our dream to work together, but it made a lot of sense because he, he brought all this stuff to the table, but it was hard, hard for me, hard for both of us to kind of, there's so many reasons why it's hard. It's hard period just being partners, hard being a man and woman, hard being husband and wife. You know, it was really, it was difficult. I think we went through a lot together uh, and I think it's, you know, a thousand times better, but it's not easy. But 
no partnership is easy. It would be, I don't know, I'm sure there are some that are easier, but I don't think it's ever easy. But what, what I can acknowledge and, and, and feel very grateful for is the stuff that he brought to the table that never would have come from me. I mean, it's this mixed DNA now because he brought American manufacturing in. Like, I wasn't importing anywhere, but... And I probably wouldn't have done that, but I would, I would be subcontracting. I would have other people make it in the U S I wouldn't be making it myself. And as an architect, he had all this kind of confidence that you must have if you're going to build a building and sleep at night and not worry that it's going to fall down. He definitely had that kind of confidence that, you know, he could do this Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're pretty much vertical and this was painful, painfully done over time. But, you know, he did, and he's made me very proud, you know, um, to say that, you know, we really make 90% of our stuff in our, we're vertical, we make it all in the U.S. So we complement each other. We fight a lot, and we try to fight constructively. He designed and built a beautiful house for us upstate, and we're, we go there on the weekends, and we enter another zone. I mean, that's that's the good part, is that we are able to kind of, just go into another zone when we go up there, and it's it, it's great. It's really, thank God, we can do that. When you go out there to your upstate place, um, as I understand, it's on like a many-acre property, nobody else around, really. Yes, that's true. Do you get to decompress from all the, the people and the personalities that you have to deal with on a daily basis? I'd say probably by Saturday morning, maybe. Okay. I mean, he does. He's able to decompress, or he, he can just turn it off because he also, he developed another passion and he's doing artwork now. And Mm. so he's, he built himself a little studio. And so he's got this other outlet. My greatest passion is what I'm actually doing anyway. I mean, I love designing what I'm designing and I'm very fulfilled on that level. I don't think he's had that, that kind of fulfillment, that creative fulfillment. So he now has this other thing that he's doing. When I go up there, we leave on Friday morning, so generally we have, you know, three-day weekends. I stay in touch with the office. I'm doing stuff up there that I don't have time to do, things that I've procrastinated doing here, and I do it up there, writing, reading. And then when I'm up there, I putt. And I have to say it's the most, you know, and it's like it's very, very zen for me. I mean, it's like I... I have no agenda, and I move from one thing to the next. I could be looking something up online, and then I was, oh, I want to iron those napkins. Oh, I want to maybe look at that recipe. Oh, you know, I, I want to read the Times. I mean, I I move from one to the other with you know, and that to me is complete luxury. And when I'm in that <laughs> mode up there, I'm pretty close to that level of bliss. I have to say that I talked about it in my when I was in the room. It's kind of it is kind of blissful. I can't always be in that zone, but it's very nice when I'm there. Well, it's nice you have it almost every week as well. Yeah, I I strive to have it every week, but sometimes anxiety goes through. (laughs) But when I have it, I feel very lucky. (laughs) So how's it going, you think? (laughs) It's It's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, we, we are super fans. I've been a fan for many, many years, and you know, I, I look to female creatives and female entrepreneurs, business owners, because I myself am also a business owner. And I think because you've built now two very successful businesses, are there any particular 
things that you would call out or maybe some advice that you could give to other female creatives or entrepreneurs? Let's see. Well, the, the, you know, by saying female, I don't know. Or yeah, just designers in general who also maybe want to design and, and run a business. Well, I'm going to go back to the first question. Let me try to, let me try to think about that, about a female. I mean, I think you have to be yourself and you can't try to pretend what you're not. I think women are in the minority in so many arenas, uh, as we know. And the only way I think this is so personal and I've never really said this before, but I hadn't thought about it. I think the only way to get ahead, let's say, or become known in a field that is predominantly male or whatever, there's no other way to do it except to be yourself. I mean, you can't try to emulate or try to be like anybody. I mean, when you really tap into who you really are and you really are honest and express it, that's when you gain power. I think that's when people listen to you. That's when people see you. It's about really being yourself. I guess I would say that. Thank you for that. It's true when I think about it. It really is. I mean, I think there's truth in that. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I think sometimes, though, it does take a while for someone to find out who they really are. and, And sometimes you have to fight through that period of time where you're like, I should do this because so-and-so is doing it like that. Um, and eventually you land on, on the realization that it doesn't matter if you do it the way so-and-so does it, you know? Right. Well, in my personal experience too, I've had so many people want me to be something. And so I have to sort of be patient during that phase where they figure out I'm not what they were hoping I was. I don't fit the box that they they thought I was going to be in. And I just have Sounds to. Sounds like you're talking about parents or family. Yeah, there's parents in a family, but I'm also in the TV industry. And so I've been, uh, you know, cast in, in certain television shows or roles where people want me to be something that they think will fit the format. And right, right. they're sort of unprepared to have a wide berth for me to just be who I am. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? What do you do? You know, I deal with it usually by trying to find the the middle ground. I don't know that Mm -hmm. I've always dealt with it the best way, but I I realized pretty early on that I'm no good at being anybody else. But if that's not what they signed me up for, then I have to be the me that is also the closest version of me to what I think they're looking for. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that doesn't that doesn't fill you with joy at the end of the day because you're not at peak expression, right? You're not being the fullest version of you when you're, when you're trying to modify it slightly. Right. You mean, right. Right. But I would agree with you. So what you said just resonated with me so deeply because I also think that's when I lost power. Mm. I think that's when people stop listening to you. And when they stop seeing you, you start to become a little bit less visible. It's not like um, it isn't scary always to some degree, but the more successes you have, the more stamina you build up. And I mean, I remember the very first major public speaking thing that I had, I was very nervous about it. I was going to be speaking. There were a lot of big people speaking there. And I got there, it was like 500 people in the audience. I'm on the stage. It was like a TED talk. It was years ago, first time. And before I went, I kind of memorized my speech. I had to speak for like 30 minutes and I did never really done it. And so I memorized this thing. I had to tell my whole story 
the slideshows and everything. And, and all these really good speakers were before me. And I'd say maybe I was the only woman I could have been. Anyway, I was nervous, but I got up there and I, I memorized the speech. And I'm telling you, I completely blanked. I didn't know what I was talking about. And I stopped. You know, I can't even see anybody because the light's on me. There's a million people out there. And I had a complete panic attack. And I just said, I said to everybody, I'm having a panic attack and I don't know what to do. Maybe somebody should give me water. And then I said, maybe somebody should give me a vodka. And everybody left. And it was like, <laughs> and then, and then everybody ran up with water <laughs> and they're laughing. And I threw away the papers and I... I did. I I did a really good speech, I think. And people used to say to me, and they still do. They say, you know, I saw you at that thing, and I said, did you see the panic attack? No, I don't remember that. That was my lesson where I realized people really do want to like you. You know, they don't. They're not fighting you. They want to like you. You know, so I don't know. But I struggle. I always struggle with. I'm getting easier. You know, walking into a meeting and definitely if there's a room full of guys and suits and not, you know, it is, you know, I can start to get, you know, like I'm not going to be able to be me. And then I find, you know what, I'm just going to be me. And then I'm going to, I'm then I worry that I'm going to be the crass me. I'm going to be, uh, not only going to be, I'm going to be tough, but I'm going to be like a bitch, you know, I'm going to seem like not a feminine woman. Uh, I'm going to no, be a ball breaker. I'm yeah. Gonna, yeah. Horrible things go through your head, you know. Yeah. It's it's tough. But I don't know. You just have to be yourself. And I don't know. Some people might walk away thinking certain things. But yeah, but I definitely, I I think now that I've said it, I think it's the truth. You, you know, even you have to be prepared. And that's why we don't do it. That you might fail in something because of it. You might discover, you know, I don't want to do that anyway. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but I guess that's all just grist for the mill, right? That's information to move forward with. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I I think you just, you can't be afraid to fail. I mean, we're we're all going to fail in things that we really want. Or, you know, if you're a business owner, you've got lots of failures. But then you learn from them and you move on. What's next for Chilowich? What's next for you personally? What's happening? Anything exciting going on? Well, product-wise, you know, I have a very, I can't really say what it is, but I I think I have something that's kind of transformational about how one looks at a table setting. So I can't tell you what that is yet. I was told not to say anything. Um, It's not, it's not, uh, believe me, it's not, uh, definitely not rocket science here, but it's just personal (laughs) to me. And it's kind of, it's one of those things that's quite simple, but it's, it's, you know, it's very, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know. It's very game changing to some degree. It's going to be one of those. Why didn't I think of that moments? For it me? might be. I think a lot of people looked at it and said, God, it's so simple. I can't believe I didn't think of this. I think so. I think it could be one of those things. Exciting. I mean, one day we're going to have to, we're going to think about, you know, selling the company because we're going to need to, you know, we're going to get old. <laughs> <laughs> you have been delightful to talk to. Thank you for being oh, so candid. So super thank you, candid thank you. and sharing, <laughs> you know, not just the, the the pretty parts, but the kind of trying parts, right. you know, and we really appreciate that. That yes. Well that makes I, it real. I, thank you. That was it was uh I I don't think I could have done it if you well, you know what, I might have done it if with but after a while I would have stopped if I felt the person like, you know, 
whatever was was not interested. You know, so oh, well, we're definitely you. interested. You, you brought out some good stuff in me. I, I I like some of the things that came out for her. That was good. Awesome. All right. Thank you Thank so you. much. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Oh, my God. I didn't think we were going to get that great stuff from her. Finally, somebody who's like doesn't say everything's all rainbows and unicorns. I love her. Oh, she was just laying down truth left and right. Yeah, but I mean, it's something that we need to hear. And it, it maybe it's something our listeners really need to hear that it's it's not always easy to run a business, but sometimes it is your destiny and there are happy accidents and you know you need to follow those things I mean that really did resonate with me deeply everybody says you have to be yourself right I've heard that a million times from a million different people in a million different ways but you know there is this idea of women aging and becoming irrelevant and invisible right they're less sexually mm-hmm. desirable there may be less hip or cool and There is nothing irrelevant about her. She is a dynamic, powerful, authentic person who is Mm -hmm. not trying to be anything she ain't. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, she learned in the boardroom and while building her empire that she was actually most effective and most powerful when she wasn't trying to, you know, wear the pants or be somebody that she wasn't. And... It's, it's nice to hear it from somebody who's, who's been through it and weathered those storms. Yeah, and I love her story about the TED Talk because, you know, sometimes we feel like that whole room of people is just waiting for you to do something wrong so they can point their fingers and laugh at you. When in fact, they are there to embrace you and learn from you and are excited about what you have to say. And so it was such a beautiful story when she just made everybody laugh and they were all giving her water and drinks. I know. And then nobody remembers the part. You might remember the part where you screw up, right? And it might haunt you forever, but nobody else in that room remembers or cares. And it also highlights this sort of universal truth that vulnerability is not a weakness. Showing your vulnerability to somebody almost always makes them love you more <laughs> because they see a, they see your depth, your rawness. Right. And they can also relate because yeah. I'm sure everybody has a vulnerability or a weakness. And, you know, we're kind of happy and, and have a sigh of relief when we realize not everybody's perfect. <laughs> right. I know. I know. Which is why she was... She was so refreshing to talk to. Yay, Sandy yeah. Chilowich. Woo! <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. And if you like Clever, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Sandy's work at cleverpodcast.com. And connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love to hear from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Peter Diamandis. Join me on Future Positive, a podcast from XPRIZE, where we convene the world's brightest minds to unpack some of the most future-forward topics. Listen to Future Positive wherever you get your podcasts. Radical future optimism for your brain.